0: It is with great pleasure that I'm introducing you to our guest speaker this morning. I said this at the end of the last service, I should have said it at the beginning, but I'm a pastor. The word pastor means shepherd, which means you got your crook to kind of comfort the sheep, but it also mentions they have a rod, and that's to scare off the wolves, to, to beat them off. And so every time you hear somebody speak, you always kind of have your little antenna, what's going on, what are they talking about? And the first time I heard Dr. Rich Freeman share at the fellowship that meets here once a month... I thought to myself, man, this is solid, this is solid, and he kept going, this is biblical, this is solid, and it was such a blessing, and then we had lunch the next day, and uh, and I thought, man, this is just a great, great guy, and then being involved, uh, watching a couple of conferences that Chosen People Ministries has put on, it's all just been solid Bible teaching, and so I'm so honored to have Dr. Rich Freeman from Chosen People Ministries with us this morning to share with us, so why don't you give him a warm welcome? Well, good morning. morning. It's good to be with you. Let me just uh, get my technical stuff set. Bear with me, I'm not the most techie person. Okay. I'm a Jewish believer in Jesus. And uh, as you can probably tell from my Florida accent, born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. And and it is uh, a joy to be with you. Just briefly, When I was working as a financial analyst, I had a coworker who just seemed like he was from another planet. He was just so different from anyone that I had ever ever seen before, met before. And he and I became friends and we just, uh, I mean, I knew that he wasn't Jewish, but one day I just decided I would find out What's the deal with him? Why is he so different? So in my typical cynical New York way, I said to him, if I ask you a personal question, will you give me a straight answer? And he said, sure. I said, tell me something. Are you a space alien? (laughs) And he laughed and he said, what do you mean? I said, well, you're not like any human being I've ever met, so... You must be from outer space. And he just, he kind of smiled. I said, I never hear a bad word come out of your mouth. You're always upbeat and happy. There's a peace and a calmness about you that I've never seen in anyone before. What's the deal? Why are you so different? And I'll never forget, he looked me right in the eye and he said, are you sure you want to hear the answer? (laughs) Because he knew I was Jewish. And that was his opportunity to share the gospel with me. Now, I would love to tell you that after he shared the gospel with me, I prayed to receive Jesus, but that wasn't the case. Uh, In fact, I got real angry with him and told him Jesus couldn't be the Messiah because the Messiah is supposed to bring peace in the world. I said, there's no peace in the world, and my people have died because of Jesus, because I always believed that the Holocaust was nothing more than Christian payback for the Jews killing Christ. And so to, to get from there... So preaching in a Calvary chapel on a Sunday morning is a long story, and I'm not going to share it with you today. But I have have something that I want to share with you this morning, and it's called the Heart of the Apostle, and uh, we're going to get to it in a moment, but first I want to tell you this little story. A man was in the process of robbing a house. He had scoped out the house. He knew there was a lot of good stuff in the house, and the house was pitch black. And as he was putting the the loot in his sack, uh, as he was doing that, he thought he heard something. And he listened closely, and this is what he heard Jesus is going to get you. (laughs) And he kind of stopped and looked around, didn't see anything. And he kept putting the stuff in the sack, and sure enough, the voice got a little closer and a little louder. And he hears, Jesus is going to get you. Now he's thinking, of all the places to pick, I had to pick a haunted house. But then he remembered he had a cigarette lighter in his pocket, so he flicked on the cigarette lighter, the room lit up, and there in the corner of the room, sitting on a bookshelf, was this big old parrot. And the parrot looked at him and said, Jesus is going to get you. And he smiled, he said, oh man, Polly, I thought you were a ghost. And the parrot looked at him and said, my name's not Polly, it's Moses. (laughs) He said, Moses? What kind of person names their parrot Moses? the parrot said, the same person that named their Rottweiler Jesus. Get him, Jesus! (laughs) That has absolutely nothing to do with what I'm going to share with you this morning, but... I like telling that story. <laughs> Why don't we pray? Lord, it's good to be in your house this morning. Thank you, Lord, for the wonderful worship that, uh, that brought us into your presence. And above all, help us to always remember, regardless of what's going on in our lives, you are good all the time. We thank you, Lord, for that wonderful truth. Uh, may our hearts just be filled with the joy of the Lord this day. And may your spirit fill us to the full. And we pray and give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. So if I said to you, the Great Commission, my guess would be you would go to the verse in Matthew at the end of the Gospel of Matthew that says, go and make disciples of whom? All nations. The original Great Commission was jesus actually the risen jesus telling his jewish followers that the message of the jewish messiah and now savior of the world would not be for jews only but would be for everyone and that was a radical message because quite frankly jewish people would have considered it defiling to even go into the house of a gentile let alone incorporate them into their faith even though that was god's calling from the time all the way back in Isaiah when they they were called to be a light to the the nations, to the Gentiles. And so the very last thing that Jesus said to his disciples, as recorded in the book of Acts by Luke, is Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus says to them, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be witnesses for me. And then he mentions four places. Do you remember the four places? First one was... Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then he said, even to the uttermost parts of the earth. So that was the marching orders of that group of followers of Jesus who were basically all Jewish. Now, do you think for a moment that when Jesus said, go to Jerusalem, that he meant just go wherever you are, go to your local community? because that's normally how that is presented in an applicational way, And there's nothing wrong with making that application. We, as a body of believers, wherever we are in our local community, in our local church, should always be thinking first and foremost, where we're planted. But if you take that application to an extreme, then Jewish evangelism becomes the great omission of the great commission. You forget about the Jews. And there's no way that Jesus was telling them, stop going to the Jewish people. This message isn't for them anymore. And where where were the other places? Judea was further out in the land, and then Samaria. Now, Samaria is an interesting place. The Samaritans were half Hebrew and half Assyrian. After the Assyrian captivity, the Hebrew women and the Assyrian men uh, produced children. And they came back, to the land with a whole new Judaism that was based only on the first five books of Moses, usually called the Torah. And they worshiped, not in Jerusalem, but in a different place, Mount Gerizim. And the Hebrews, the traditional Hebrews and the Samaritans hated each other. And there was that constant bickering about who was right, who was wrong. And then we come to John four, when Jesus meets up with the Samaritan woman, and she's shocked that this Jewish man would even speak to her as a Samaritan. So what is Jesus saying when he says, go to Samaria? I think he's telling us that we should be sharing the gospel with everyone we come in contact with, even people we don't like. And I guarantee you immediately someone popped into your head. And you're thinking, but Lord, if I share the gospel with that person and they get saved, I'm gonna have to spend eternity with them. But that being said, that's the calling. And then ultimately, to the uttermost parts of the earth, bring it to people that you would not consider for a moment before. And that really has been the marching orders of the church. And so, what I want to look at this morning is what happened with the gospel. Remember, when Jesus said that, after he finished, He began bodily rising into the heavens. And that was how he left them. He didn't just disappear like quick. He just rose and they watched him disappear. And once he disappeared, you would have thought, man, I'm going to remember these last words. So they would have been so zealous and gone out into the world and really preached to everyone. But that wasn't the case. If you follow the book of Acts, that early church stayed in Jerusalem. They had no desire to go to the Gentiles. And we don't really see that happening, <coughs> excuse me. We don't see that happening later on until we see Peter in a place called Joppa. Now, Joppa is, if you're familiar with the, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, that's where Jonah uh, left. He was supposed to go to Nineveh, but instead he went to Tarsus. It was like, go to Iraq, but no, I'm gonna go to Spain. That's, that's basically what Jonah did, or was trying to anyway. And so Joppa is a place where there was a man named Simon the Tanner. And Peter, whose name also was Simon, was staying with him and ended up on the rooftop of Simon the Tanner. You ever wonder why on earth was Peter on the roof? Everybody know what a Tanner is? A tanner takes animal skin, dries them out, and makes different stuff out of those animal skins, like leather goods. But he didn't have a store where he did that. That was inside his house. So that house had to stink really badly. And Peter is up on the roof trying to get some fresh air. (laughs) So I lead tours to Israel. And one of the first places that I take people is to this site In It's a beautiful spot. You see, it's right on the Mediterranean Sea. How many of you have been to Israel? The first time I went to Israel, I'll tell you what the biggest surprise was for me. The amount of Catholic churches. Right? I mean, I couldn't believe it. Every place you went, there was a Catholic church. And finally, I did some research. What happened was Constantine's mother, whose name was Helena, who achieved sainthood in the Catholic church, was given sainthood because she was supposedly given this supernatural gift of God to know where different biblical events took place. So wherever Helena said something happened, whether she was right or wrong, they built a Catholic church on that place. So this particular Catholic church is on the site of the place that she said was Simon the Tanner's house. And so on the rooftop, on the rooftop, Peter was put into a trance and received this vision she came down from heaven and there were a bunch of unclean animals in it now i I got this particular picture off the internet and i'm not sure whether there were snakes and giraffes and hippopotamuses in that particular vision (laughs) but nonetheless unclean (laughs) and so peter hears a voice from heaven and the voice from heaven says arise peter what was he told to do kill and eat." And Peter said, "Uh uh-uh, I don't touch that stuff, not kosher. Second time, the voice comes to Peter. Same statement. Arise, Peter, kill and eat. And once again, Peter refuses, saying it's unclean. And then the voice comes a third time. Arise, Peter, kill and eat." You ever notice Peter learned in threes? Uh, Seemed to be his reminder of what what he did to the Lord. But after the third time, he figured out that this wasn't so much about food as it was about people, that no person should be considered unclean. And at that exact moment, the slaves of the Roman centurion Cornelius show up and invite Peter to come back to where they were from, Caesarea on the sea, and uh, share the gospel with Cornelius. And so Peter went, shared the gospel with Cornelius. The whole family got saved, and now there was a problem. Gentiles are getting saved. What are we going to do? By the way, how many of you are Gentile? If you're not sure, you are. If you were Jewish, believe me, you'd know. (laughs) And so, what to do? And the the reality was, they needed a leader of that ministry, someone to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And my theory is that as they were trying to figure out who should we pick to be the apostle of the Gentiles, nobody wanted the job. So who did God pick? God picked the least likely person that anybody would have thought of. That crazy rabbi, Saul of Tarsus. Spewing out hatred, persecuting the early group of believers on his way to Damascus to uh, bring back Jewish believers back to Jerusalem to deprogram them back to the the traditional Jewish faith of their time. Do you know Jewish believers still get kidnapped and deprogrammed? Even in the United States, we've had a couple of people that that have happened to people that we know. So it still happens. So Paul was on his way to retrieve them when Paul had his confrontation with the risen Jesus. And so what I'd like to share with you, the calling of Paul Paul was called by God to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Again, God chooses the foolish things, the weak things to confound the mighty. And and if you don't think it's weird that a six foot four Jewish guy is in your pulpit this morning, believe me, it is. But nonetheless, as Paul is called, Paul's background is he's a scholar, a rabbinical scholar who under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, wrote more than half of the New Testament. And he was brilliant in the way he wrote and his knowledge of of Greek and Hebrew and all of that. And he would write a letter, do all this great teaching, and then from that teaching, give application. Very practical, teaching, application. Almost every one of his letters had that same process. And his greatest letter, his magnum opus, if you will, was the book of Romans. And the book of Romans has probably some of the most important doctrines of the Christian faith that Paul wrote about. Justification, sanctification, glorification, all of that. And when he comes to the end of chapter eight, he should have gone on to application. But he got to the end of all of his teaching, and I think he was kind of overwhelmed with, with what he had processed. And so if you would, Open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. This is the last two verses of Romans chapter 8. And Paul writes this, and he's writing to a predominantly Gentile readership. He says this, he says, "'For I am convinced,' some versions say persuaded, "'that neither death, nor life, nor angels, "'nor principalities, nor things present, "'nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth,' nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus, our Lord. What a statement. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in the Messiah. Nothing. And then I think Paul thought for a moment and said, people are going to have questions about this. And the question is, Paul, what about Israel? What about the Jewish people? why are so few now believing that yeshua jesus is the messiah and so instead of going on to application he'll do that beginning in chapter 12 he spends the next three chapters answering the question what about israel what's god's plan for the jewish people and in the process i think sharing his heart with us which is why I call this the heart of the apostle. So let's look at Romans 9, 10, and 11. This is just a flyover. We're not going to go verse by verse. There's a book in the back that does that, that I would highly recommend. I'm the author, so naturally I'm recommending it. But it's verse by verse. We're just going to do a a little bit of of a flyover. So Romans chapter 9, verse 1, I'm telling the truth in Christ, in the Messiah. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit, That I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. So, the first thing that you see is Paul's heart is sorrowful. Paul has great sorrow and unceasing grief in his heart. His heart is sorrowful because as he thought about his Jewish brethren, his brethren according to the flesh, as he's going to say in a little bit, it broke his heart that so few were believing. Let me give you some modern statistics. At the time of Paul, there were still quite a few Jewish believers within the body of Christ, within the church, the body of Messiah. Today, there are not quite 15 million Jewish people in the world. At the time, prior to the Holocaust, prior to World War II, there were about 18 million Jewish people in the world. So as you can see, the 6 million who were executed haven't even been replaced to this day. And of those almost 15 million, about 3%, not quite a half million are believers in Jesus. We've done extensive research through different organizations to come up with that number. In Israel in 1948, when Israel was formed as a nation, there were, I think, seven families, extended families that made up about 75 people who were believers in Jesus. Today, depending on who you ask, there's as few as 20,000 and maybe as many as 50,000 believers in Israel and over 150 Messianic congregations. So the Lord's at work and things are happening. But back to Romans 9, when Paul said, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Listen to what he says. He says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh who are Israelites. What's Paul saying here? He's saying if he could make a deal with God, that somehow he could trade his own salvation and for the salvation of his Jewish brethren, he would do that. Now, I've been called to ministry for many, many years, and I've not once thought about trading in my salvation. I would love to see all the Jewish people come to know Jesus. But some commentators say, well, Paul, you know, was fond of using hyperbole, you know, exaggerating to get a point across. Paul's not using hyperbole. You're getting a sense of his heart here. This is how heartbroken he was over the fact that his Jewish brethren didn't know Jesus and were were refusing to To believe so his heart is sorrowful but his heart is also prayerful look at romans chapter 10 he says this he says brethren my heart's desire my prayer to god for them for israel for the jewish people is for their salvation my heart's desire and my prayer to them if i asked you If there was one prayer that you could have answered by God in the affirmative, you know, where God gives you what you ask for, what would that be? That's your heart's desire. I hope it's not to get a nice house and a nice car and stuff like that, but rather one of those people in your family who is the uh, project, the one that you say, man, that's not going to happen. That's how Paul was looking praying for the Jewish people that they would come to know Jesus. By the way, I was one of those that's not going to happen people. So God is is the one who does miracles, isn't he? And it's it's not up to us to do miraculous things, but God may do that through us. But God is able, and uh, that gets us through. Listen to what he says. He says, for I testify about them, that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. They have a zeal for God. I want to tell you an experience I had the first time I was in Israel. And I've been to Israel more than 30 times since then. We went to what's commonly called the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall, uh, which to Jewish people is the most sacred spot in the world because... This is where the Holy of Holies was. This is where the presence of God was in that first temple. And so here we have this incredible place. And on the wall are all of these cards and pieces of paper that people stick in for prayer. And um, they don't destroy them. They'll fall to the ground and decompose, but they won't take them out of the wall. And uh, I, I came up to the wall and... As I came up to the wall, I became very, very aware that on both sides of me, and by the way, the men and the women are separated. So the women have to go to one place, the men go to another place because women are distracting to men. Let's face it. (laughs) Just kidding, don't shoot me. But no, they're still separated, even to this day. And so I'm praying, and I'm very aware that on both sides of me are these Orthodox Jewish men. And they're praying in, in the, what's called davening, where they're, they're rocking back and forth. And if they mention God's name in their prayer, they will bow their knee and go even further down. And uh, it's a beautiful way of praying. And I was trying to listen to the prayers to see if I could pick up any of the Hebrew. And they're praying these beautiful prayers honoring God. And suddenly, and this hasn't happened to me many times in my life. And I've been a believer for almost 40 years. I heard a voice in my head. And it was, it was like Paul was talking to me from the book of Romans. He said, they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. And I just started weeping and praying for these two Jewish men and the Jewish people in Israel, as, as God put that on my heart, and, you know, praying that somehow they would come to know their Messiah. He says, not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God, which is Jesus. And he says, for Christ, the Messiah is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And the whole point is the the law pointed people to the Messiah. The law required perfection. No one except one human being was ever able to be perfect. And so Paul says in Galatians that the law is a schoolmaster, a tutor to draw people to Messiah. So Paul's heart is prayerful. Now, the fact that Paul prayed for the salvation of his Jewish brethren tells us two very important things. Number one, that they were lost. Now, don't get me wrong, I wish every Jewish person in the world will end up in heaven. I don't believe that's the case, but I'm not saying that they're lost out of a, a mean spirit, but Jewish people, like everyone else, are lost apart from Jesus. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, there are branches of Christianity that teach something that I consider a heresy. It's called a double covenant theology, which means that basically, Jewish people are right with God, not through Jesus, but through the covenants that they made with, that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In order to believe that, you have to ignore what Paul wrote in Romans 9, 10, and 11. First, Paul is heartbroken over the fact that they're lost. Then he tells us that he's praying for their salvation because they're lost. But also, when he's praying for their salvation, he's telling us something, I think, equally as important that Jewish people, like everyone else, are savable. Does that sound strange? I had a pastor speak to me and say, what you people are doing is a waste of time. When Jesus came to Israel and they rejected Him and put Him on the cross, God rejected them. God's through with the people. Now, that sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? But he's not the only person that believes that. And so, Paul is telling us the opposite. Paul is telling us they're savable by the fact that he's praying for their salvation. You don't pray for someone's salvation if you don't think they're savable. Anybody ever pray for the salvation of Satan. I hope not. He's lost, isn't he? But he's not savable. We already know where he's going to end up. That's already been decreed. So, Paul praying for the salvation of his Jewish brethren tells us that he believed they're savable. And the fact that I'm standing before you as, as a Jewish believer on both sides of my, my family, 100%, tells us that it's true. And there's almost a half a million of us around the world to back that up. I have, thank you, thank you, Chris. I'm hacking away, I'm sorry. <laughs> so Paul's heart is prayerful, but it's also hopeful. Turn out to Romans eleven eleven. easy number to remember. How many of you have a digital clock in your house or in your car? So I want you to do me a favor the next time and every time you see eleven eleven on your digital clock, there's a fellowship <coughs> that meets once a month on Friday nights here. Joel and Julie Klayman lead it, and it's called Light of Israel Fellowship. And I believe they're, they're going to have an impact in the Jewish community here in Orlando. But every time you see 11-11, I want you to pray for that little fellowship, that God would supernaturally bless it. Listen to what uh, Paul says here in Romans eleven eleven. He says, I say then, they, talking about the Jewish people, did not stumble so as to fall, did they? And here, basically what it is talking about is when they rejected Jesus, was that permanent? Just like that pastor was saying to me. And Paul responds very, very strongly. He says, may it never be, God forbid... But listen to this, but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous, or to provoke them to jealousy. Now if their transgressions is riches for the world, their failures riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles, and as much then as I'm an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. if somehow I might move to jealousy, my fellow countrymen and save some of them. So Paul believed that he would have an army of on-fire believers who so loved the Jewish Messiah that they couldn't help but love the Jewish people. And that army would be the ones to share the gospel, share Jesus with, with his Jewish brethren. And we know for a fact, after surveying probably a few thousand Jewish believers, uh, we asked, one of the questions that we asked is, who is the most influential person in your coming to faith? And you know that more than 90% said a Gentile believer. So even though I'm here as a Jewish believer, standing here telling you that my ministry is to reach Jewish people, there's a, a Yiddish word that I've been called, uh from time to time by some Jewish people who, who are not believers. The word is Mashimid and it means, loosely means traitor. And so, very often, a Jewish person, particularly a religious Jewish person, will look at me as a traitor to the faith. And, um, but, this is a, that's a very important but, if they live near a Gentile who has a great testimony, like my coworker, they will be more likely to at least be open to listen. And that's very often what happens. So that's Paul's heart. He's hopeful that somehow Gentile believers would have a heart, a burden to share with their Jewish friends and neighbors, family members sometimes. And if you remember the original great commission that I shared in the beginning, it was Jesus, the risen Jesus speaking to his Jewish followers, telling them that they need, if if we do it like a circle, they need to bring the gospel to all the nations. Now the apostle to the nations is saying to you, those of you who raised your hand who are Gentile, you need to finish the circle and bring the message back to the original messengers. That's what this is about. And quite frankly, uh, it's tied into the final days. If you look at Jewish ministry in the last days, listen to what Paul says in verse 15. He says, If their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? What is Paul saying? Well, when they rejected Jesus, the gospel went to the to all the nations. If they would have accepted him the first time he came and he would have started his kingdom, it would have been a little different, but obviously that wasn't God's plan. However, however, when they start accepting Jesus, that's a sign of what I believe is the next spiritual event to take place on our calendar, which is the rapture of believers. So to see that, Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13. Paul is writing to a group of people he didn't spend a lot of time with. The book of Acts has only three Sabbaths, which could have been three full weeks or two weeks and three weekends. And they, as he taught on this particular event, there was a misunderstanding that somehow believers who died before Jesus returned would miss out on this great reunion. And that's what Paul's dealing with in this. But listen to what he says. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed. Some verses actually have the word ignorant, brethren, about those who are asleep, talking about the dead, uh, the dead who are believers. So that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. So he's not saying don't grieve. He's saying don't grieve like people who don't have the hope of this reunion. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, how many of you believe that? If you didn't raise your hand, speak to Pastor Will after the service. (laughs) If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. People who've already died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. Listen to this. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So when this event happens, the dead, from the time of the cross all the way till this event happens, are going to rise and receive new resurrected bodies. Now, their spirits are already with the Lord, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. But they're going to get new resurrected bodies. And I'm sure Pastor Will gets this question. I get it a lot. What's that going to look like? And here's the answer. I don't know. (laughs) But some speculation is, since Jesus is called the first fruits of the dead, and he's the first fruits of the resurrection, he rose first. He was 33 years old when he died and rose from the dead. So... Maybe we'll look like we did when we were 33. I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty good to me. (laughs) The dead in Christ will rise first. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, on what we commonly call Palm Sunday, his triumphal entry, he enters Jerusalem, and there's this big event, Barry throwing palm branches on the ground, yelling, Hosanna, Lord, save us. And Jesus, after he entered Jerusalem, wept because he knew that they didn't understand why he came. And he said to his people, his Jewish brethren, he said, you will not see me again until, so there's a time frame involved, and he used this beautiful Hebrew phrase, until you say, Baruch Haba Bashem Adonai, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So a sign that Jesus gave us of his second coming is that Jewish people are going to be turning back to Jesus. And I have to tell you, just to encourage you, we are seeing more Jewish people come to faith in Jesus. We believe than at any time since the first century. And so I can make this statement without fear of contradiction. We are closer to Jesus' return than we were yesterday. And I think we're getting closer and closer. So what does all of this mean? How do I put this all together? You have a great church, a wonderful pastor, great worship. And God has strategically placed you in an area where there are many Jewish people. Part of your outreach needs to include those Jewish people. And you need to be purposeful about it. And that's part of what this Friday Fellowship just starting out is about. And I think the more that you get involved in Jewish ministry, I I believe, maybe it sounds self-serving, but I believe the more God's going to bless your church. And so I want to encourage you to do that, to really be involved with reaching the Jewish community, And in doing that, you're gonna reach a lot of people, Jewish or otherwise. Just simply by following what Paul said when he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Then he said to the Jew first. Now, sometimes it's kind of taken out of context. It doesn't mean that you can't go to a non-Jewish person until you go to the Jewish person but it means that the gospel itself is a Jewish message about a Jewish Messiah written by Jewish people. Everybody who wrote the Bible was Jewish except for Luke, and he was a doctor, so that's almost like being Jewish. (laughs) But who more than the Jewish people need to hear about Jesus? That's what it means. And Paul said to the Jew first, and really he said, and equally to the Gentile, there's, there's no priority in that way, but don't leave the Jewish people out. And so as we get ready to pray, I want to encourage you to, to do that. And uh, I need you to do me a favor. In your bulletin is one of these brochures. So could you please take it out? If, if you don't have one, we have some eager looking ushers who want to put it in your hands. And if you would, just hold it up like this so I could see that you have it. Okay? righty. So what I want you to do is open it up and there's four columns. The last column is an involvement card. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to fold on the perforation on the involvement card. Fold the perforation. Don't tear it. We're gonna tear it together. Okay? And then at the count of three, we're going to tear this together. And if you do this right, it's going to make a really neat sound. Sounds like the rushing wind of the Holy Spirit in in Acts chapter 2. But you have to do it together. So follow my instructions. Okay, everybody ready? You sure about that? You ready? Okay, here we go. One, two, three. This is better than the first service. Okay, so this is what it should look like. This is for you to keep all about Chosen People Ministries, some biographical information about my wife and I, and this is an involvement card. And we are so zealous to have you as part of our prayer team that if you fill this out and bring it to our book table and drop it in the basket, we will give you a free book. So just fill it out, drop it in the basket. And now I tried this the first service, so I'm going to try it again. So um, we have some young digital media people in our ministry who want us to do this. Anybody have a smartphone? See if that QR reader brings you to my landing page from our ministry. So you could do it on your phone. That's what they're telling me. Do, does it get you there? Okay, good. I have no idea. But anyway, if you want to do it on your phone, you're welcome to do that. But you won't get a free book. But you can still go to your phone. And uh, so in the back, we, we had some book buyers, the first service. This is a brand new book that I just wrote. And the title of the book is The Lord is My Shepherd, Dianu. And the Hebrew word Diano means that is enough. And in the the day and age that we live in, if the Lord's as our shepherd, and that that relationship is very important to understand. If the Lord as our shepherd, regardless of what our circumstances are, isn't enough, we need to examine our faith. And one of the struggles that people have is about contentment. The subtitle of this book is God's GPS for finding contentment. And so, it's a commentary on Psalm 23, gets into some detail, verse by verse, but also talking about what different people think about contentment and how to attain it. I think you'll find it very helpful in this day and age. When David said, "'Even though I walk through the valley "'of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil.'" Why wouldn't he fear no evil? What does he say? "'For you are with me, the presence of God, is so important in the life of a believer. And I think, that's why I think this is an important book, Then, hopefully you'll get something out of it. And this is the verse-by-verse study of Romans 9, 10, 11 that I was telling you about that the message was loosely based on. So that is my message. And uh, again, fill that out, bring it to the back. We'll give you a free book, and there's a few other books on the book table, I think, that are left. But let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're grateful, Lord, for your great love for us. And even as we we look through Paul's heart for his people in Romans 9, 10, 11, we're reminded that uh, there are so many Jewish people who are lost without their Messiah. May there be a great openness in the Jewish community here in Orlando. And I pray for the fellowship at this church that you would bless it and that people would really have a heart to see Jewish people come to know Jesus as their Savior. Thank you, Lord, for your great love for us. And if there's anyone here who has not yet asked Jesus to be their Lord and Savior, I pray that even now you would be drawing them to yourself as only you can, helping them to understand that none of us are perfect. We are all sinners in need of a Savior, that Jesus came to be our Savior. He died on the cross and rose from the dead so that we could have eternal life. I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here who needs to do that, you would speak to their heart even now. And we thank you, Lord, again, for your great faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.